Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host Danny Bessner, and we are very lucky to be joined once again by Emily Grebel. Emily is professor of history at Vanderbilt University. She is author of Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe, uh, which just won uh, another award, apparently, the Secret Cartage Award. So congratulations, Emily, for that. Uh, and uh, if you want to talk a little bit about that, feel free. And uh, But it's a great book. We've already I uh, already have sat down with you to talk about the first part of it, and we're going to get into to part two today. So, uh, Emily, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for being willing to to, to visit us again. So few people are. Me. I really appreciate being here. <laughs> well, we're, we really appreciate having you. Um, part two of your book gets into the formation of Yugoslavia and the Muslim populations of what became Yugoslavia. Why don't we start, since this is actually somewhat embarrassingly not a, a subject that we've really covered on this show, can you uh, give listeners the sort of uh, European History 101 version of the creation of Yugoslavia, broadly speaking, and then we can get into uh, the Muslim populations that were, were incorporated into this new country? Absolutely, although I'm surprised you haven't had other talks on Yugoslavia because it is really one of the most fascinating countries in, in Europe. Uh, so what happens after World War I, uh, as listeners no doubt know, is you have these sort of great land empires of Europe that are sort of, they lose in, in the war and they are carved up and uh, remade into new smaller states. And this includes the Habsburg Empire, um, the Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, which undergoes revolution, and then you have the Soviet Union, and the Prussian Empire. Um, and in that process, which sort of is developed through the Paris Peace Treaties, that the process begins in around 1918 and continues into the 1920s, it's a series of treaties, one of the states that they create is the state of Yugoslavia, which officially was called the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes in its first decade or so. Um, and like other states that are created after this imperial moment, um, the idea behind it is national self-determination, which was a Wilsonian concept that nations should rule themselves. So it's kind of this anti-empire idea where sovereignty will lie with the nation as opposed to with empire. Of course, it doesn't always work out that way. Um, we know that they don't give self-determination to lots of people and also the ways that self-determination emerges um, and the boundaries of states don't always match. Um, but within that, in Southeastern Europe, there are a series of local movements uh, that had formed that had different ideologies, but all sort of generally under a rubric of, sort of South Slavic national ideology or Yugoslav, Yugo means South, uh, national ideology, which stipulated that South Slavs should have control over their own state. And so in 1918, different committees within the Habsburg Empire, politicians in the independent states of Serbia and Montenegro, they come together and they agree to formulate a state of Yugoslavia. Um, and it includes sort of widespread territory. So what is today 
Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Kosovo, uh, North Macedonia, Montenegro, and Serbia. And so that's kind of the general framework. Um, the treaties that uh, in an international domain that sort of uh, enshrine the state in law uh, are, are done through the Treaty of Saint-Germain. And, um, and that sort of stipulates, and I imagine we might get into some of that because that's where we get some of the sort of requirements of the state in terms of citizenship and nationality and religious rights and those kinds of things. So it's not the only state to you know, be created after 1918, but it is a sort of a unique state in its multi-ethnic, multi-religious, but multinational and multilingual sort of character. And also, unlike some other states that had been exclusively formerly par- part of the Ottoman Empire, right? So if you think of Greece, right, it had been fully constituted within the Ottoman Empire or fully part of Habsburg, Europe, or Prussia, Yugoslavia sort of brought in different imperial traditions and was sort of an amalgamation of lots of different both post-interial territories and also territories that had previously been independent. Serbia and Montenegro. So, uh, yeah, you raise a couple of interesting questions here. One having to do with the question of self-determination. Who are these selves who get to determine what happens here? So let's talk a little bit about what, how much recognition there was that you have this diversity here on in, in terms of religion and not just Catholic and Orthodox, but you have these Muslim populations in this territory that are going to be incorporated into the state. How much of it a say those populations actually get in creating this new country and what is outlined in this sort of foundational period in terms of the rights and protections that are afforded to those groups. Yeah, so there's here you have both sort of a local history and you also have the international history. So at an international level, you know, the statesmen, the diplomats who are meeting uh, in the Paris, in the various Paris peace treaties, understand that there is a problem, that these Im- empires don't can't be neatly carved up into little tiny nation states that are going to be homogenous. And so within the treaties themselves, they create clauses for minority rights and protections. Um, these are essentially you know, smaller minority groups typically defined in national or linguistic lines. So Italian speakers who live in Yugoslavia right, or Germans in Poland, um, these groups would be uh, given certain kinds of cultural and linguistic rights, the rights to have their own schools, the rights to have newspapers, these kinds of things. Jews are also, they sort of advocate at the Paris Peace Treaties and also get related minority rights From the outset, Muslims sort of foil this whole question of what is a minority, uh, especially in Yugoslavia. And there's a number of reasons for this. Uh, The first is that they are multilingual, right? So do you think of minority exclusively in a language as a language community, the Turkish speaking minority or the Albanian speaking minority? Or then the Albanian speaking minority, you have Catholics and Orthodox and Muslims. So are you looking at this as a religious category or are you looking at this as a national or linguistic category? Another problem within this question of minorities is that there are a lot of Slavic-speaking Muslims who both identify and are identified as part of the Yugoslav nation. And yet, on the other side of this, there's these long-standing legacies of Islamic autonomy and confessional autonomy and institutional autonomy. And so there's this tension that's built into the question of Muslims as minority from the very outset. 
there's also this added layer that many of the European statesmen did not see Muslims as qualifying for self-determination, uh, which of course then leads to the mandates. And we see sort of an unequal treatment built in from the outset toward the way Muslims are understood as either European citizens or European minorities after 1918. So you have all this complexity, right? And then on the ground, you have Muslims who are experiencing as many peoples across Central and Eastern and Southeastern Europe, the ongoing warfare, officially the war ends in 1918, but we know from Robert Rewarth and other scholars, right, that this doesn't actually end. And it continues. And in many places, Muslims continue to experience severe occupation policies, violence, you know, there were massacres, there are imprisonments, there's the sense that they belong to sort of a foreign unit, a lot of calls for uh, sort of the, the discrimination or repression of Muslims that they might be columns. And so within Yugoslavia itself, you have diverse communities of Muslims who see this language of minority rights as potentially the path to try to have a sort of seat at the table. Um, and they begin to organize small action committees in 1918, 1919, 1920. They meet by city. They put together programs. They're incredibly politically active. And they begin to sort of formulate what they want. And what that is, is minority rights. They want to be treated like a minority. And they want uh, the right to kind of control Islam. And they also want the right to have a Sharia judiciary as part of the state judicial infrastructure. And the state agrees in the 1921 Yugoslav constitution, they enshrine a Sharia judiciary. Um, and all Muslims throughout the country are not only given access to it, but actually required to use it. So it creates this strange sort of new kind of state surveillance over how this is going to, to operate. They also ask make other demands as well. There's a, a the Bosnian Muslims seek to have you know, autonomy, which they're understanding as it's an Ottoman legal concept, not necessarily how we might understand autonomy today. And so there's all these other things that they ask for. Uh, but in a general sense, sort of that's how we have sort of at both a local and an international level this idea of the Muslim minority emerging in this post-war period. I will just say one more thing, which is that many Muslim communities don't want to be part of Yugoslavia. <laughs> this is especially the case in North Mas what is today North Macedonia, Kosovo, the Albanian-speaking, Turkish-speaking Muslims, but also many Slavic-speaking Muslims. Uh, the Ottoman Empire still exists at this time, and so there's many Muslim communities who are sort of opening that, you know, why why can't they be back in the Ottoman Empire? I mean, it had they had been part of the Ottoman Empire five years earlier. It doesn't seem like that necessarily has to be off the table. And others then, especially in the Albanian-speaking communities who look towards this, you know, the new state of Albania that had formed in 1912 and think, well, maybe you know, that would be a better place for us. Um, and so you have these mixes of people and then you leave, there's migration, but there's war in the Ottoman Empire, so they don't necessarily, you know, that's not always the best solution. I can talk more about repatriation than return migration if we want to. But this question of where do we belong and what does it mean to be a minority uh, and how self-determination is sort of created as a concept without European Muslims in mind. That's really interesting. And I, I you, you know, you talk about uh, the Sharia mandate, which you started to, to, to get into, but I'd like to 
talk a little bit more about that. You're, you know, you've got a chapter of the Sharia mandates, and uh, I think it was the Yugoslav nation building. That's right. Um, and this is interesting to me because it, it, it seems to be a movement by some leaders of Muslim communities to kind of ask the state to adopt, to some extent, religious functions, Islamic functions, set up schools, set up you know places where where uh, Islam can be practiced, the courts, Sharia courts, in a way, in order to bring you know they they advertise this as a way to bring these Muslim populations fully into the nation, make them part of uh, the new nation. But it's it's interesting to me because you're sort of asking non-Muslim governments to to take over these functions, and that seems very unusual for Muslims to to support. And I, so I'm curious, you did mention there were some Muslims who didn't want to be part of Yugoslavia, but what was sort of the internal dynamic in, in the, these Muslim communities around the idea of the Sharia mandate? Maybe you could just sort of explain what that means first and then, and then talk a little bit about how it came to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, what I understand as the Sharia mandate is this quest in the period before 1921 to ensure that a Sharia judiciary is part of the new state formation. And it's seen as sort of a guarantor for many Muslim communities of, sort of uh, religious autonomy and the right to maintain uh, control over their socio-religious practices, to maintain control over certain aspects of education and sort of put a wall up against uh, the secularizing civil uh, public sure. system. And then so I guess I, if I can, inter- sorry to interrupt you for a second, but if we can focus on that piece of it, who would be running these things? Who, who would, what was the idea in terms of who would be in charge of the, the Sharia courts and the, the education uh, ultimately, I guess? I mean, the idea was that Muslims right, would be fully in charge of them and that it would be, I believe, kind of a similar to the ways that minority rights were understood in other groups. You have, you know, the Italian community lived in Istria. They're able to have Italian schools. Who's running those? The Italians. Um, so the the idea here is that uh, Muslim communities and Muslim local Muslim leaders would control those aspects. Now, a really important part of this is the wah or the what is known in South Slavic languages as the Vakuf, um, which are the uh, Islamic pious endowments, because those had separate funding mechanisms. And part of what Muslims who were fighting for these rights were fighting for was to maintain control over those funds as well, um, and to maintain control over the properties that were generating the income. So there's definitely kind of an economic component also. And and I believe the idea behind it is if you control the money and you control the institutions, then you actually have a way to kind of maintain the integrity of a Muslim minority community. And then this becomes paired with various kinds of political movements and social movements that are sort of understood as the on the ground functions. You have kind of this macro legal political realm and then you know, they also had local groups now because a lot of people did not you know agree with how this would operate and there were also deep divisions within the muslim community over what this looked like right what did that sure what would this sharia judiciary look like um you end up with kind of tensions and debates and various kinds of it doesn't really become sectarian 
conflict um, in in the 1920s, uh, but it's certainly political and ideological conflict. So how does this relate to nation building? Because, of course, the post-World War I era, especially in the region, in the Balkans, and Eastern Europe, is a great era of nationalism and nation building. So how does this fit in this transition from empire to nation state, which is such a theme in 20th century European history? How does that, how do Muslims fit in to what's going on in Yugoslavia? And then, if you want to, in, in the larger region itself? Yeah. So Yugoslavia, immediately the government and the political institutions, including some Muslims who are active secularizing Yugoslavs, try to subvert this process. And they use the Sharia mandate as a means of sort of intervening and surveilling and supervising kind of what the practices of Islam would be, or at least they try to. We also have, at the same time, a kind of agrarian reform campaign to take and redistribute Muslim lands, especially in the southern parts of the country. Um, again, Kosovo, but also this area called Sanjak and uh, North Macedonia, what is today North Macedonia. And so there's this tension over sort of nation building as a Slavic enterprise and sort of nation building as a a plan to create, you know, democracy and egalitarian citizenship. And this tension is is especially legible uh, in cases that involve Muslims, in areas where Muslims live, because the state is constantly feeling kind of in competition with and trying to subvert uh, Muslim independence uh, on the ground, while also then sort of making these gestures toward sort of religious autonomy. So one of your chapters is called The Bonfire of Muslim Unity. Maybe we could talk about that. And, and what do you mean by that, this interwar period? What do you mean by the bonfire of Muslim unity? And how does that fit into the larger story you're telling about Yugoslavian democracy? So the bonfire of Muslim unity was actually a quote from a newspaper um, in which one that's sort of Muslim paper in Bosnia was describing a group of Muslims who they believed were undermining the sort of united Muslim cause of politics. And they they have this wonderfully descriptive examples of you know, this slimy predatory. I mean, they describe their, their fellow uh, compatriots in, in really descriptive terms. Um, and one of the things they say is that if we can't create a singular political minority with a, a uniform agenda, that we will end up basically dividing, killing each other, and it will be the bonfire of, of, of Muslim unity. Uh, and you know, part of the challenge here is, again, as I started out with in the early part, this is a multi-national, multilinguistic population. Right? Being Muslim is how the state often understands individuals. But in their own local communities, there's all sorts of ways people understand themselves and their political identities and who they are and what they want. Um, and there's also a lot of tension because there's almost a hierarchy built in with the Slavic-speaking Muslims who, you know, kind of have can kind of ease their way into the Yugoslav nation and the Albanian and the Turkish-speaking Muslims, but also the Roma Muslim population which are sort of seen lower in the hierarchy of citizenship that is emerging in the hierarchy of what, who gets to be part of the nation. So while even Slavic-speaking Muslims aren't you know, at the top of that hierarchy, they're kind of above. Uh, and they see that as a way to 
try to control and create a uniform policy across the state. And that's met with a lot of resistance. On the other side, you also have certain groups of Muslims who see aligning with the state as the best option forward. They see working with especially the Serbian national parties is going to be the best path toward sort of securing certain kinds of rights. They recognize they are a small minority. Um, And that's also seen by then other Muslim groups as collaboration and as sort of undermining kind of the, the cause. And so you end up with all sorts of factions within the 1920s and the 1930s over both what Islamic policy should be and what a political minority should be. And there's two big Muslim parties or organizations that form in there. And, you know, they're both sometimes in dialogue with each other and then other times in conflict. Uh, and part of what I try to argue in the book is that it's this pressure that Muslims face from actually the outside, from both the international community that wants to see minorities as this sort of standard and homogenous category, and also the state that through the Sharia mandate wants to see Muslim as a homogenous category, that you end up with this incredible pressure. Whereas once, you know, you it didn't matter if you had different political views or different social views or different ways of practicing Islam, Um, within the Ottoman Empire, even within the Habsburg Empire. Now there's this just tremendous pressure to form a minority. And within that, then certain leaders or members of the elite will emerge to try to give that shape. What does this suggest about international liberalism and its search for almost a Foucauldian identification and the the ability to to diagnose, because that, that's what really leapt out to me, is that you have this sort of international liberal authority trying to make something visible and not really making sense on the ground. So I was wondering um, if, if you have any ideas about what this says about liberalism at the time and, and liberalism being imposed in this region in Europe. Yeah. So I think I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've been doing a lot of reading on the 1920s in Turkey also to try to make sense of of how this system is emerging. And I I really think the international system of liberalism was at its core not able to treat Muslims as equal. And Ebru Gochar has a new essay out and talks a little bit about how, you know, until 1928, Muslims were not even, they didn't even qualify within the League of Nations for refugee status. <laughs> and, it's, and then only when they are, it's Turkish Muslims. And I'm thinking about all of these refugees and displaced people that I've written about. And it didn't, that, I mean, that hadn't occurred to me. I wasn't you know, making that leap yet. I'm thinking, wow, like, this is unbelievable to think about how an entire category of people were sort of marginalized within the emergence of the international system and the ways that liberalism developed. So is that inherent to liberalism? Because liberalism needs an other, and particularly in the last 30 years, there's been a lot of writing in contemporary Europe about how the Muslim replaced the Jew as the other of liberalism. Is is Would you see it as sort of found, foundational to what liberalism is? I mean, I've never framed it in that way before, but I do think that European liberalism developed in a way where it always needed an other. And the discussion or the idea of equity or equality is is constantly grounded on the fact that certain groups need to either fully give up their pasts or become part of this project 
Uh, right. And you literally can't give up your past. I mean, like you can't right. really do it. Right. So it's, it's, it's defining you as permanently outside of the community of the liberal nation. And it's, sorry, I'm, I'm sticking on this. I'm finishing up a volume on Cold War liberalism. And this is what they did in the United States. And it just seems endemic to the philosophy as a whole, at least as it h- historically developed. But maybe we could. I look shift. forward to reading that because I, I mean, I think you're really onto something. And I think it does start earlier. I think. You know, if you think about, you know, Laura Robeson's work or Vera Sugelbaum's work, also in terms of refugees, statelessness, I mean, this whole concept is sort of raised within the system alongside liberalism. And there's constantly this group that's kind of considered or carved out as as other. Um, and that is often Muslims, broadly defined. And continues down until this day. And, and when you, you uh, attach liberalism to something like the national security state, some very dark things wind up happening. Um, but maybe we could now shift from the level of the international to the level of the nation state, because the subtitle of the chapter six is Misfortunes of Yugoslav Democracy and Authoritarianism. So could you maybe talk a little bit about what you mean by that? And, and really, how is this operating at the level of the nation? You, you already had talked about it a little bit, but maybe just hit it, hit it home before we move on to this moment of legal uh, revivalism that comes right after. Yeah, sure. So in 1929, Yugoslav Cake decides to end the democratic liberal experiment. I mean, it was never fully democratic and it was never fully liberal. <laughs> uh, there, uh, and create an authoritarian state. Um, and a big reason for this is that the, the way the state was first set up after 1918, it was sort of too kind of too heterogeneous, it had it never fully centralized. Um, and there were all sorts of different movements, national movements, religious movements, and especially in Macedonia and in Croatia, there was really political sort of dissent. Um, so the state never fully functioned. The 1920s, mid in the south, southern parts of the country in Macedonia, Kosovo, you have sort of military occupation and ruthless sort of colonial policies in other parts of the country, just have local governments that are not fully engaged with the state. So in 1929, uh, the king decides to erase this. There's an incident that causes this, uh, a violent incident in par- parliament. Uh, and he you know, decides to int- introduce a system of integral Yugoslavism. So essentially uh, privileging nation building over democracy and liberalism. Uh, and they sort of in, just in down the road from courts to schools political parties, they jail people that dissent, and they try to create by force a Yugoslav nation state. And that, of course, then leads to more dissent and more anger and more frustration because now people don't have their political movements. Anything with the word Muslim in it was considered political. And so for Muslim communities in the early 1930s, like they have certain organizations that, like, this isn't a political organization. It's a social organization, or it's a, you know, cultural organization, but it would get removed anyway. And so there's this real tension between the state and all societies, and that's not just with Muslims. Um, and then through the 1930s, uh, right as we have the rise and escalation of fascist, you know, Italy and the expansion of Nazi Germany, you see kind of just a... Uh, a more a, a greater comfort with sort of right wing central centralizing authoritarian politics across the state, and and one of the things they do, I mean, here especially related to Muslims, is 
they they develop alliances with Muslims who will go along with the state system. And then part of the reason they do this is because going back to what we were talking about before, they hope that this will allow for the creation of a sort of more uniform Muslim identity and political movement. And so one of the things that the head of the Islamic religious community does is actually outlaw teke or Sufi lodges, uh, much to the great (laughs) frustration and anger of Sufi Muslims, many of whom are Albanian speakers. And so they immediately, you know, write the state and say, this is nuts. Like, you can't just eliminate our entire religious practice, but it's done sort of in alliance with those people who will work with the authoritarian government. Emily, this, uh, that's, that's maybe a good place to bring it back to the, these different Muslim communities. It's, you've talked about the diversity of these groups. You've got Turkey speaking Muslims, you've got Albanian speaking Muslims, you've got Bosnian Muslims, you know, sort of, uh, there's a a number of these different communities in this space that all get lumped together as, uh, as Muslims, but maybe aren't necessarily, uh, shouldn't necessarily be lumped together. Can you talk a little bit about how these groups interacted with one another? Was there sort of a pull to, to unify Muslims in Yugoslavia to, to kind of make it a, make them a stronger political block or was there more of a kind of outward pressure to keep these groups separate of how were intellectuals within the community talking about these political issues and uh and sort of you know what was that that kind of dynamic like yeah well as i mentioned earlier you know you have this hierarchy where slavic muslims are kind of higher in the political system because they are technically part of this Yugoslav nation. So they don't have the kind of dual formation of minorities, right? Whereas Albanian Muslims have both their Albanian speakers and their Muslims. So they end up with this kind of two-part minorityness uh, in the eyes of the state, right? Not in their own eyes. And so you end up with a lot of these sort of back and forth tensions. And by the late 1930s, there's an effort within the Yugoslav government to deport uh, Albanian and Turkish Muslims. Predominantly, they want to sort of remove Albanian Muslims. And they start to negotiate uh, with Turkey to do a population transfer. Uh, and at that point, a lot of the leaders in the Slavic-speaking Muslim community are like, no, this, you know, once you start carving off parts of us, then an attack on one subset of us is an attack on all of us. And so you see within the intellectual community really an effort to try to cultivate a more united Muslim front. And they do this um, many accounts through, uh, and this is the next chapter, we haven't, we haven't gotten there yet, but it sort of leads into it um, through uh, Islamic legal revivalist uh, ideology and the idea that sort of a global Islamic community is going to offer more on the ground. And is going to allow for sort of unity within and among Muslims, which will then enable them to really create a voice and try to defend their rights at a state level. And and part of what I think they're looking at is in other places. So, for example, in Bulgaria, which also had Slavic-speaking Muslims, Pomaks, and Turkish Muslims, and Romani Muslims, the sort of division between these groups was really successful, and it sort of decreased any kind of political power or voice that Muslims as a larger group were able to have. 
And so sort of then I think that's a kind of deliberate tactic, right, of nation states <laughs> is to kind of separate minority groups and prevent them from having, you know, the power of a uniform idea and being able to come and negotiate as a unit. You know, if you've got 15% of your population saying we demand X, that's very different than 2% demanding one thing and 3% demanding something else. It's an interesting dynamic. And you, you mentioned some of the, you know, there, there were attacks on Sufi communities uh, mm-hmm. at this point. And, and Balkan Islam being very heavily Sufi influenced, inflected. I'm curious how this, how a focus on Sharia or legalism as a way to unify the Muslims of this, this region played out in a community that was maybe more mystically inclined than necessarily legally inclined. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where you get a division between a lot of the kind of educated Islamic scholars who were trying to kind of conceptualize a path forward, many of whom were trained in Egypt um, and coming back to Yugoslavia and trying to kind of mirror some of the movements that are going on, you know, what we today call political Islamic movements uh, in other parts of the world and trying to generate that kind of you know, excitement and activism on the ground in Yugoslavia as a way to counter liberalism and secularism, which they see as fueling um, this repression and marginalization of Muslims broadly. Um, you know, the Sufi communities are, are furious and people, you know, this is really upsetting and um, you end up with you know, a lot of communities who look or sort of oppose the more sort of rigid rhetoric and the rigid approach to Islam. Um, you also just have kind of, you know, lots of Muslims who are secularizing, right? And want to be, you know, don't really, un- that's not the movement that they feel they identify with, which both stems from the kind of possibilities of heterogeneity and practices of Islam, but also just from the sort of period of modernity, right? traveling in Europe and, you know, going to Vienna, going to Istanbul, coming back to Yugoslavia, and you have your own idea of what it is to be Muslim and, and how you want to engage with your state. Um, but what we really see in, in what might be at a, in a, at a state level in terms of, you know, what Belgrade is seeing the government in Yugoslavia is this, this, the repression of Sufis really fuels a rift between Albanian and Slavic Muslims. Even though there's lots of Sufi also in Bosnia, I just haven't come across a lot of documents that talk to that particular rift. It really then becomes layered on top of a sort of national linguistic Maybe let's um, take a little bit of a macro view uh, and talk about the 30s writ large and, and how the depression and the rise of fascism in Europe sets the stage for what happens in the early 40s. So how does the depression affect what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> you guys really ask easy questions. Um, <laughs> so you know, Muslims are greatly affected in Yugoslavia by the depression, as are many communities, but especially because they're coming on the heels of agrarian reform and the redistribution of many of their lands. They've had a lot of their, even their endowments tapped. Their local economies had to be restructured. So whereas many economies once operated within, especially in Bosnia, Kosovo, Estonia, had been part of this broader Ottoman imperial structure, so now you suddenly have political boundaries and customs, and they have to kind of reallocate and restructure 
you know, how they're selling things and what they're selling. And they're doing that within the context where Muslims experience constant racialization. And I'm remembering this one really great example where tobacco, in the tobacco industry, you know, the Muslims who are growing and trying to sell tobacco are like, why is our tobacco being marketed as an inferior form of tobacco? We're like, you know, from our next door neighbor's tobacco, the same darn tobacco. <laughs> um, but it's understood as, you know, within this system as Muslim tobacco. And so then it got sold at a cheaper rate. And so they're really struggling with this. And that then also hits hard in the depression and, and affects Muslims in, in a different way. You know, through the 1930s, because so many different groups are frustrated and upset with Yugoslavia, um, and because there's, you know, the many Muslim groups are also really in tune to what's going on in the Middle East, both British colonialism and imperialism and French repression, and also the plight of Palestinians. This is very much on people's minds in the newspaper. Um, there's a real disdain for the British, uh, the Americans. There's also a disdain for from both communists and capitalists. And, you know, as the... 19- disdain for the Americans? Come on. Yes, I know. What did we do to anybody? Hard to believe. Um, but by the late 1930s, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is there's this kind of optimism that maybe Italy and Germany will go offer a different path, right? A different... They're developing autarky. Their own countries are sort of rebooming economically, and they actively reach out, especially to elite Muslims, to try to develop, you know, alliances. And it's not just with Muslims; right? they do the same thing with Croats and uh, with other groups of people. But they're they're thinking, you know, many Muslims are thinking, well, maybe there's a yeah, a different kind of political arrangement that can emerge, one that gives. Muslims more autonomy and agency over their political future. And also they're socialized. And in the, in the 30s, you also, with that whole Yugoslav integralism, you end up with, you know, they have to, they're required to, uh, Friday prayers have to begin with a prayer for you know, the, the Yugoslav prince, and they're required to celebrate certain Christian holidays. And this is, yeah, this is not what we signed up for. And it's kind of a complete uh, reversal of what we understood as our minority rights, as the rights, you know, in the Sharia mandate, like that's, and the Sharia mandate is my own term. I don't really, you know, it's, it's a concept to try to capture all of this. So that's, you know, where Muslims by the late 1930s are, are going. Um, and they're, and that's including in, you know, in Albanian speaking communities and also in Slavic speaking so World War II in Europe breaks out in 1939, and then Hitler invades Yugoslavia in, I believe, April 41. And pretty soon thereafter, Yugoslavia surrenders and is divided into several territories. My understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that several are occupied, and then Croatia is basically its own fake puppet state. Wow. Um, Some so, are annexed. Some areas are directly, directly annexed. Directly annexed. Europe and Bulgaria. So, um... I imagine this affects Muslims. So, <laughs> how? how, how <laughs> yes. So, how how does this um, affect Islam in Yugoslavia and, and the Muslim community? So, it affects them in a million different ways. There's a book that's coming out in Bosnia that I really hope we can get translated into English by Adnan Yafic that tries to kind of just in Bosnia, it's like 800 pages, document all of these different 
alliances. Uh, but what we find is many Muslims decide, much like they had in previous eras, to sort of take a wait-and-see approach. So invasion happens. Yeah, certainly some continue to fight with the Yugoslav army um, or leave in exile with the Yugoslav government in exile. Um, but the vast majority, especially at kind of the bureaucratic and political elite, are not unfamiliar with regime change, right? Many of them had experienced this multiple times, whether they were in Kosovo or Bosnia, over the preceding decades. Uh, and so they immediately try to maintain stability at the level of the town or village, try to keep um, local governments functioning, right? Keep schools open, keep newspapers, sort of really adopted, especially in places where they maintain some local political power, really tried to adopt a, um, I hate the word, no, really accommodation. Right? I, and I don't love that word because I think it's uh, has all sorts of meaning now in the Holocaust literature, but for lack of a better word, they are maintaining stability and a functioning society. And a big part of that is food, right? Feeding your people <laughs> and, and accommodating refugees and trying to create stability out of wartime chaos. Within that, many of them are happy that the Yugoslavs are kind of out and that they see this as an opportunity to reintroduce certain aspects of uh, what they had imagined was going to be sort of Muslim autonomy and what they had imagined was going to be control over schools and and the courts. So almost going back to that, you know, first moment where they, they kind of fight for minority rights after World War One, they're sort of seeing this as a moment to try to get some of that. And both the Germans and the Italians give it to them. Um, and so did the Croat Mustasha. And so you... Yeah, in the early period, it seems like, you know, this this could be this could be a good working relationship. We have a new empire, right? The nation state had never really worked out for them, right? Empire had been better in retrospect. And so you end up with kind of this wait and see. Where you start to get tension is when uh, the war really escalates at a local level and uh, there's a lot of fighting over Nazi racial laws, which the Ustasha also introduced. Uh, many Muslims are aghast at Nazi racial laws, which subvert Islamic law to racial law. And when Muslims are being targeted, they are just horrified. And they actually speak out. Um, and it's one of the only... Emily, I actually have a quick question. Where, where yeah. do Muslims fit on the Nazi racial hierarchy? Uh, they are Aryan. As a, as a broader group, right? But that's the, the Slavic Muslims, Albanian Muslims, they are, they are, they are Aryan. Um, there's all sorts of racial ideologies and discussions. Are they Iranian? Uh, there's a committee put together in Sarajevo on you know, determining the racial ideologies and they come up with the Indo-Germanic race. And they, but the problem is this isn't for all Muslims, right? So Roma Muslims are understood as racially other, as non-Aryan. And this becomes a real source of tension between Muslim elites and Nazi elites or Ustasha elites because the Muslim elite are like, no, they're Muslim, right? Like all Muslims are of the Indo-Germanic race. You can't target one section of us. And I think in part they knew that from the interwar period because they watched Yugoslavia. If you start to be able to target one subsection of a group, then very quickly you can strip other groups of, of similar rights. And so they had 
they really tried to fight some of that racialization. They also believed strongly that Jews who converted to Islam were Muslims. And that obviously didn't fly with the Nazis who deported those Jews anyway when they could find them. Um, And this really created a rift between a lot of the Muslim leadership and the the Nazis and the Ustashas. So how does that relationship proceed or prepare the path for Tito or what comes with his Tito's just getting rid of the Sharia legal order? Does it, is it kind of a, a separate moment, the 41 to 45 period? Does it set the stage in particular ways? Are there aftershocks in how Muslims are understood in the region or Europe? What, what should the listener take away from this unique period in uh, Muslim history in Yugoslavia? So in the, in the Second World War, there are multi-sided civil conflict, and it's often distilled into three groups. You know, Tito's partisans, the Ustashas and the Chetniks, I argue, and I think there's a lot of evidence among other scholars as well that this is just incomplete, that there are all sorts of other Muslim groups as well as other groups that are part of this multi-sided civil conflict. Um, when Tito takes over in, in 1945 and the partisans, the communist partisans win, there's a lot of fear and anxiety. Once again, there's also a wait and see component, right? Okay, what is this new state going to look like? Tito promises religious freedom. And of course, he then immediately backpedals on that. Uh, but from 1946 to 1949, there is a pretty robust uh, Muslim resistance movement to communism, um, there is an Islamic movement in Bosnia-Herzegovina and also in Croatia, uh, which we haven't talked much about, uh, but uh, to fight the communists and to try to recreate some of the sort of foundations at a very local level. It's widespread dissent and armed resistance. You also have armed resistance that continues in Albania and uh, in Macedonia with Muslim contingents within that. And so no, the takeaway really is that by you know by the late 1940s, there's no great option. Muslims were faced, you know, predominantly with the choice of radical right or communism, and didn't really see either of those as the best path forward. But didn't really have any other options, and it becomes incredibly repressive in the early communist period. So as we close out here. I'm just curious what you think about, or if you could talk a little bit in sort of a concluding way about the the, the very title of your book, which is Muslims in the Making of Modern Europe. We talked about it a bit in the first episode, but now that we know the whole story, how have Muslims made modern Europe and how have we lived with those afterlives since, let's say, in 1949? And, And what does your story help illuminate about the role of Muslims, not only in the history of Europe, but of the contemporary political situation in Europe, which I think they Muslims occupy a very particular position, particularly in a Europe that is effectively free of Jews. Yeah, I think that what you know, the, the title of, you know, of course, publishers come up with titles, and I think we, came, we talked about this last time. Um, it, the, the idea here is that Muslims were part of the European process. They were part of every single major political and historical moment. And what I wanted to try to do and what the the title tries to hint at is they're there, right? They're in the process that we're making modern Europe. And these little choices over how 
citizenship is going to be defined, over how secularism is going to be defined, over the relationship between uh, government and religious institutions, in terms of funding, in terms of surveillance, all of these things are defined and, and evolving in conversation with European Muslims. And this is one case study of where and how that happens and sort of tries to zoom out a little bit to make sense of this and be great to have other case studies that do similar work in other places to see where we piece this together. But I think what we really see in this early period is the foundations of Muslims being written out of a liberal egalitarian Europe. And I think the repercussions for that are clear today. They're clear with the genocide in Bosnia in the 1990s. They're clear with the sort of constant struggles over Kosovo's status as a sovereign state, over the rejections of Turkey in the European Union. All of these things are, you know, we're dealing with in a contemporary setting, but we can see their roots in this earlier period, starting in the late 19th century, as Europe and the international system are being restructured into what historians call the modern international system or modern Europe. Emily Greville, I think that's a great place to leave it. The book, again, is Muslims and the Making of Modern Europe. Go out and pick it up. It's a fantastic book. Award-winning book. Thank you Emily, so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. American Prestige Seal of Approval. We should start giving those out, Derek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can I'll totally put it on my website. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.